right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We are not going to be recapping this last week in golf. Uh, We are coming off of a rain and wind-soaked weekend at our uh, Nest Invitational Tournament here in Jack's Beach. It felt very personal. The weather felt extremely personal. The only two bad days of weather we've had in the last basically like two months down here were on the exact two days that we were supposed to have this tournament. Uh, We appreciate everyone's effort that came down from all over the country. We got in as much golf as we could, almost none of it not being completely soaked. But weren't able to watch a lot of golf this weekend, so tonight's episode will be our interview from a couple weeks ago, actually, with Lee Jansen. Uh, You know, we recorded this at the Furick and Friends Constellation uh, Senior Tour event here in Jacksonville. And of all things, I thought this this is not a timely one. We can kind of play this one whenever. You know, nothing within this is really necessary. You know, timeline-wise, it's going to feel dated. Well, it turns out Lee Jansen would go on to win very shortly after this. He talks at the end of the podcast about, you know, what he still wanted to accomplish. He wanted to win on tour. And, I, you know, I saw some of the, his recent results. I kind of thought, man, that's that's an ambitious, ambitious goal. And sure enough, a few weeks later, he's winning the SAS. Uh, he's, of course, doing that with Callaway throughout the bag. He's been in the same Epic Speed driver since last December. Uh, he changed it to the 2020 10S putter after he used the same putter for a very long period of time. Uh, He even surprised himself switching into a new putter, but it has been great. Proof was in the pudding when he drained two putts, one one on the 54th hole uh, at the SAS and one on the first playoff hole to go on to a victory. He switched to the Chrome Soft X LS golf ball, which he's been very happy there. It fits his wedge game perfectly. He's a high-spin player. He wants his ball to hit and stop and never spin back, and the Chrome Soft X LS is the perfect fit for him. You can always, of course, find information about Callaway staffers, what's in their bag at CallawayGolf.com. So without any further delay, let's get to our interview from last month with Lee Jansen. I'm going to start you with a trivia question about your own career. 13. (laughs) Across Champions, PGA Tour, and Corn Ferry, how many career starts do you have? Oh. Um, Well, I don't – I could guess. Uh, Let's see. Probably over 800. But uh, I had dinner with Jeff Sluman in Sioux Falls a couple years ago when he played his 1,000th event of combined Champions Tour and regular tour, and I looked to see how many I had, and it was about 750 then. But I didn't count the uh, Corn Ferry, so I'm guessing I'm somewhere over 800. 815. What, what, what's your reaction to that number? I, I wonder if I'll get to 1,000. Uh, it'd be nice. That means uh, my body will hold up at least another seven or eight years. Is it is it purely body related at this point? I mean, what 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 do you get out of Champions Tour golf? What do you get out of competing at, at the age of fifty seven? Well, it, yeah, it's still a challenge, and, and there's some things I figured out in my golf swing and my game that I you know wish I'd have known a long time ago. But I'm also trying to figure out what I knew thirty years ago that I don't know now. But it's still very challenging. I enjoy it. It's more fun when you play well, obviously, and I still like going to play old courses that I have not seen before. Um, you know, if we have a tournament wherever and there's a great course like St. Louis Country Club, I finally got to play for the first time. I've been wanting to play there for 20 years. Hmm. Well, what are you still learning about the golf swing? That's interesting that you're you're unlocking stuff at this age. Right. So I don't hit nearly as many balls as I once did. And I, I often wonder if I just, you know, grooved myself into some bad habits over the years here and there and then have to go undo it. But 
I'd probably keep it a little simpler, uh, just about my backswing and impact are, you know, pretty simple thoughts now. And I, if I get off of that, I can get back to it pretty quickly. So my, my ball striking doesn't change a whole lot from week to week. So if, if you were to do it over again, you would say maybe you would have hit less balls, you know, in, in your prime. Is that fair to say? Or, or what, what are the things you wish you, you yeah. did know back in the day? I wish I would have practiced more hmm. purposefully. Okay. Um, I started working with Mike Bender 15 years ago. Um, and you know he we we don't ever have a practice session or a lesson without you know some specific training to for feedback where we can you know he has a thing called the megsa which is pretty amazing set up when you're inside this square he has um, the opportunity to put angles with sticks and foam noodles and other things throughout you know for the guy who moves off the ball for his head for the guy that whips it inside for the guy that swings out too much so if you put all these devices there in the way you know they're there to help you swing where you're supposed to you're you would make a perfect swing without hitting any of them most swing devices are attached to you you know for training but so that that specifically gets you to swing properly and gives you immediate feedback so i carry sticks around and when i get off a little bit i set up the little swing plane or whatever and it gives me immediate feedback and tells me where i am hmm. do you dive into a lot of video Rarely. The only time I see my swing is when I go see Mike, and that's, you know, over the last few years I haven't seen him but about one time a year. Do you not get a lot out of, out of video, or is that just something you've, you've always just kind of just gone by feel? I usually about halfway through the first swing, I already want to go back and hit balls because I see it immediately, and I go, oh, there's no reason to watch four more of the same swing. So <laughs> That happened to me that I was actually hitting it really good, and I saw a swing on video, and I said, I don't, I don't like how that looks, and now I'm right back to square one, not, not hitting it good. Yeah. I'm not sure I actually have ever liked any of my swings I've ever seen on video, so... <laughs> Update us kind of on your on your PGA Tour champions career and kind of I, I want to kind of dive into you know I, I feel like I get kind of similar but kind of somewhat different answers from everyone when I ask you know what what do you enjoy what do you get out of playing on the PGA Tour champions? Well, it, it's it, I think it's a gift first. Um, I don't think there's another fifty year old and older set of professionals that get to do what we do the way we do it. Um, I think every you know every other sport is basically just exhibition. This is an actual competition. You know, they're not official majors. We're not counting those against the regular tour, but the competition is very good. It's never been better. The tournament records are being shot every time we play somewhere, and courses are being set up more challenging. My first year, pin placements were usually six and seven steps off the edge. Now they're three and four, hmm. just like the regular tours. It's not you can't come out here and cruise. No, you got to you got to putt well too. You know, you would think older golfers don't putt as well, but these guys, everybody, they putt just as well as they ever did. Uh, when they're playing, when everybody's playing well, they're putting well. How different is a three-round tournament versus a four-round tournament? Is there is there any kind of style difference that goes into that? Well, if you don't play good the first day, it's a lot harder to catch up uh, with three rounds. So, um, and then four days is you know it's a long haul. It doesn't seem like much one more round, but it is. You know, it's it's just a little bit more of a sprint. So mm. not like a Monday qualifier, but, you know, you really it's great to get off to a good start. You know, you shoot par and guys shoot 64 the first day. It's going to be hard to catch them. Right. How long does it take you to get to know a golf course? I think that's still kind of a, an underrated aspect of being a professional is taking that show on the road every week. Learning the nuance of a golf course can be d challenging if you only get 18 holes, maybe look at it in a practice round. What's You're going through that here at the practice round here ahead of the Furican friends. What 
what's your process for that? How easy is it to get to know a golf course in a week? Right. So what I do is probably different than almost everybody else. Um, and I think everybody has their own little thing to figure out a golf course. Um, you know, the Bob Hope, we had four courses, and I'd see guys just getting a cart and drive around them. You know, they'd hit a few shots here and there. That was all they needed. Uh, but I like to play the whole course, and um, I try and scout out where I think the holes might be in the tournament and find out where the straight-in uphill putt is and draw an arrow in my book. So even when I'm hitting from the fairway, I can look at that arrow and see, okay, this back pin, the ball runs away behind the pin. I cannot hit it past the pin in the air. Um, and you can remember all those things by seeing a course once, but it's hard. Um, just the little extra effort of uh, rolling balls on the greens, I get to know the greens a little bit better. Doesn't mean I know them perfect, but um, I get to know them a little bit better. And when I, your approach shots are coming, I think that's you know some of the benefit there. My rookie year on tour, when I was able to play the Monday Pro-Am and an extra practice round, I did better than the other weeks where I only got a practice round on Tuesday. So at the end of the year, I noticed that, and so I, I thought, okay, in, in the future when I go to a new course, I need to see it twice. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's, it sounds like maybe a, a no-brainer, but that's a lot of golf to play in one week, especially if you're playing a lot of consecutive weeks. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, very hard to get from one tournament to the next one. You're going to try and finish on Sunday and then play the Monday Pro-Am. What was qualification like? You know, your first year on tour, was at 89 or 90? 1990. 1990. Was it uh, exemption categories? How'd that work? When did the, the rabbit system, I guess, go away? or when, what, what was it like getting in tournaments week to week? Is it pretty similar to how it is now? I think sometime in the early 80s maybe is okay. when the, that rabbit system stopped. And they even had tour school twice a year at some point. And then they had two chances at first stage for a while. And I think that stopped in 85. Um, I know Rocco, he's got, uh, you know, his first time he tried tour school, he missed the first stage, but there was a second chance at the first stage, and he chips in from 90 feet on the last hole to get in the playoff and then made it to the second stage and then got his card, and he's been on tour ever since. <laughs> but he was, like, ready to quit. If I don't make it, I'm not going to play, which every pro's ever said, you know. They've, they've always made statements like that. If I don't make this cut, I'm quitting, or if I don't get it through tour school this year, that's it. And, usually nobody follows up on that but what was the landscape like in the early 90s like if I look at the tour schedule now I don't know if there's 47 or something full you know full events that almost every one of them's over six million dollar purse what, what was the landscape like in the 90s in terms of volume and and purse amounts compared to what it looks like now right 1990 a million dollar purse was a big deal uh, I think Doral was usually the biggest purse of a regular event they always had a full field tour school rarely got in there Phoenix I think we didn't play two courses, but I think they had a bigger field. And then they you know, realized with the frost delays that they'd have to shorten the field there. Tucson, we had two courses. So that was a full field. But, you know, you got in a lot more events as a rookie back then. It's harder sometimes on the rookies now. I don't know that, you know, out of 47, how many do they get if they don't do well early in the year? I know it's difficult uh, with all the short field events now. But back then, I played 30 events my rookie year. Coming out of uh, – I finished tied for 10th. I guess my number was 16. There was six of us that tied, and I shot par the last day, and everybody else shot one under or even, so that's how they broke that tie. But I got to play plenty. I mean, there was a couple of events. I was first alternate. I didn't get in, but I played 30 events my rookie year. What do you What do you remember fondly and maybe unfondly about, about being a rookie out on the PGA Tour? The, well, one of the first things that struck me the first two months on the West Coast was how much water was on the golf course. I just – um, water hazards you yeah, mean yeah. yes just right there um just tucson was desert but pebble beach the water there uh, san diego the water really wasn't that much in play 
on 18, but the Phoenix is right there off the water, and then Palm Springs, all the water around the golf course. For somebody who wasn't used to seeing that much water that close to being in play, it was a little different. Where were you, where did you for for the listeners? Where did you grow up, and what was kind of your your route to come, getting on the PGA Tour? Right, I grew up in Lakeland, Florida. Did not play a, a whole lot of amateur tournaments. Just didn't have the the opportunity to go do that. I played one summer of the Western Am, the Porter Cup, the Sunny Hannah, the Southern Am, and the US Am. And then the next summer, '86, I turned pro. The second my eligibility was out of school. I know some guys play as an amateur the next summer to see if they can win the U.S. Amateur one more time or, or get in the Masters or something that way and, and then maybe turn pro. But I was like, I was ready to go Monday qualify and play in state opens and start making money. Hmm. What was your what was your self-belief at that time? I mean, did you – it's always a weird thing to kind of look back and evaluate. You're, here you are playing professional golf a good 30 years later. But was there doubt in your mind whether or not you were good enough to make it at the highest level at that point? Um, I, you know, talking about having a – you know, backup plan or plan B. That I never thought about that. I never thought of like, what am I going to do if I don't make it? It was never a thought. I was just going to keep trying until I got there. A quick break to check in with our friends here at Original Penguin. You can go straight to originalpenguin.com and just sign up with your email address for fifteen percent off your first order on originalpenguin.com. Listen, my cheat sheet, I go straight for the men's sweatshirts and sweatpants tab, the Jace fleece hoodie, the fleece joggers. It's just absolutely perfect stuff for the winter. I look forward to coming home at the end of a long day, throwing some of this on, sitting on the couch and relaxing, staying warm on the couch. First thing I put on in the morning is an original Penguin hoodie. I'm wearing their stuff on the golf course, of course, all the time. But I honestly, I'm supposed to do this ad read in a minute, and I, they have too many offerings to fit in in just one minute. I love wearing the stuff with the Penguin on. They got some stuff with big Penguins, little Penguins. Again, their they're offerings in joggers and sweatpants and comfortable clothing, that's what my favorite thing they've got going currently in the store. So again, go to OriginalPenguin.com. You Register with your email and you get 15% off your first order there. They've, of course, been great supporters of our content in the past, sponsored Season 5 of Taurus Sauce. And uh, you'll see us wearing original Penguin stuff all throughout our, our travel series throughout Michigan that we're currently airing on our YouTube table titled Taurus Sauce. So, again, OriginalPenguin.com. Let's get back to Lee Jansen. What was your welcome to the PGA Tour moment? Walking out on a range, seeing somebody hitting balls next to a guy or a pairing you got or something? Well, I qualified for the U.S. Open in 1985. I was still in college. So that was having never played in anything significant. Um, the Florida State Open would have been the biggest event I played in up to then. And I played Oakland Hills and the U.S. Open. And my ca- my roommate lives right near the course, so he's catting for me for the week. And we go on the range, and he goes, there's a spot right over there. And Nicholas is hitting and Watson's hitting in the spot in between them. I said, nope, I'll just wait. <laughs> I'm not going to go over there and hit balls. <laughs> Well, as a college kid, you should have seized that opportunity. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, another friend uh, had qualified that week, and it was a little putting green. Uh, and he said he walked out there with a sleeve of balls and opened his sleeve, and the balls fell out and landed on each other and scattered. And one of them rolled over, like, behind, you know, right next to Savvy and Tom Watson. He said he just turned around went back to the locker room and got another <laughs> sleeve of balls. <laughs> he said, I'm not even going to go pick those up just – so embarrassed. Were those guys, I mean, were veterans on tour, were they intimidating at that phase? Were uh, you know, were they helpful for you as a rookie in any way? What do you remember about most of those guys? Well, Peter Jacobson, uh, and he did it to me, and I've watched him do it ever since. He just introduces himself, and my locker being right next to him a lot of weeks, you know, he just, hi, I'm Peter Jacobson, and what, he asked all kinds of questions right away. So he always got to know everybody, and of course remembers everybody too. 
you know, it's just different personalities. Curtis Strange is not going to walk around the locker room introducing himself to everybody, but he's a guy that you would love to go fishing with or play golf with and have a beer, whatever. He does a lot of fishing. We're, we're Facebook friends. I see him out there fishing quite quite frequently. Because, yeah, I, I look in it and skipping ahead to at least I, I was going to wait a little bit to talk Ryder Cup, but I'm looking at you were the youngest player on the 93 team, if I, if that, if I did that right. And you're, what's it like walking into a team room with, I'm seeing Raymond Floyd, Lanny Watkins, Tom Kite, Fred Couples on that team. Seven Hall of Famers. Seven Hall of Famers on that team alone. Yeah. What's, what's that like being the youngest guy on that team? Oh, yeah. It was a veteran team, without a doubt. And to be 29 and be the youngest player on a Ryder Cup team, that you, that's an unheard of now. I don't think that's going to happen again. How many guys were under 29 on this year's team? Uh, I think seven or eight of them, I think, were. Yeah. You know, the 97 Ryder Cup, I was right in the middle. I, you know, it was just four years later, and there was a bunch of guys younger than me then. Um, but, yes, uh, what a group of guys. Very very veteran. Um, my wife, uh, we were expecting. She could not make the trip. She was the only wife that didn't make the trip. So um, it was a little different because I was solo that week, and everybody else had their wives. And, uh, you know, being somewhat shy, um, I didn't like, you know, command the room ever i just sat back and soaked it in because hmm. that's what it's amazing how often guys go to speak about the their wives or their significant others being involved in them. like you ask how the week was and like that is such a key component of it that i think i don't know if that translates for for golf fans at home just how how important it is all the off course stuff and just being having family involved how important that is to a lot of the players yes um so Ryder cup you know your wife's going to be inside the ropes walking with you and then all the functions you go to, she's sitting next to you. Um, and of course, you know you're in the the little bit of time you're actually in your room. Um, you know your best friend's there, um, so it's 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 really good to have her along. She went to the '97 Ryder Cup, and it was great that she had, she was able to be there with me for the '97. I went and pulled up some old highlights of the '97 Ryder Cup, and I need to hear a little bit of the story behind. I see you doing a little, a few motions at the crowd, maybe kind of putting your hand behind your ear as if taunting the crowd a little bit. I need to know the story behind that. Well, Saturday, Furyk and I were playing Monty and Langer. And every green, they would cheer like crazy when they stepped up on the green. So on the 10th hole, uh, right when they Monty was about together, I quickened my step and got to the green right as he did, and they started cheering. I took my hat off and waved, and some guy in the crowd yelled, We're not cheering for you, Jansen! <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, the I had more fun with that yeah. it just it kind of like it didn't upset me but I was like and I made a putt on that hole and pointed to the guy and then made a putt on the next hole we ended up not winning our match uh strange thing because of the rain in the morning they didn't think we were going to finish and they went and double cut and rolled the 18th green we didn't know so we played the last hole and it was almost dark um but we just birdied 17 to get the 18 and they were putting for bogey or putting for par. I'm sorry, from maybe around eight feet. And we were on the front of the green. It was alternate shot, and I was putting. And I'd hit a bunch of putts that week. And I liked the way I hit my putt, and my putt just kept going. I rolled right by the hole like nine feet, and I did not have any clue why I hit it, you know, that far by the hole. And then I found out about an hour later that they had just double cut and rolled that green before we got there, which would explain why my putt went way by the hole instead of right next to the hole. They did that at the 2003 Masters in the playoff. I don't know if you ever heard that story. Between Lynn Matisse and Mike Weir, they had double cut and rolled the 10th green 
in between the finale, the, the finishing of play. And I think if you remember, if you look back, Lynn Matisse three putts it, I think, and Weir blows one by too. But I, I, I just I don't, immediately made when you said that immediately made, made me think of that story. That, yeah, that, well, I know why they did it at the Ryder because they were preparing for the next day. But right. the Masters, that makes no sense at all. The Ryder with the playoff, you think they just want to keep it the way it is? But yeah, that's that's quite bizarre. What else do you remember? about so that that 97 event that, that I don't I don't really remember that I think 99 is kind of the one that really people you know my age really remember fondly but 10 and a half to five and a half going into the final day and the U.S. team almost came back to win that one that almost went uh very differently right so yeah I guess to get back why I put my hand up to the crowd I, I just started you know with the crowd instead of letting them get to you I would just had fun with it over and over again you know and they would sing Ole so I pretended they were saying Oli. But anyway, uh, they were just – I think the etiquette has deteriorated with the fans every Ryder Cup. It just gets a little more saucy. But anyway, you know, when you're on foreign soil, you're going to hear things and whatever, and there's no point in getting mad. Just play better. For my match, looking on the board after 15, I could do the math, and it looked like if I didn't win my match, they were going to clinch the Ryder Cup in my match. On 17, where they like to all gather and party and jump in the pond and everything, so – I really didn't want to see that. And then when I hit it, I won 16, and when I hit it on the green on 17, um, it was like crickets. Oh, no. <laughs> so I put my hand up like, I don't hear you chirping now. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. And then all of our USA fans started chanting USA. I was like, well, that's not what I was asking for, but I'll take it. <laughs> and then I made my putt, and we went to 18, and I hit it stiff and won that hole too. What's what, what's I mean, everyone kind of describes golf, playing the actual golf in the Ryder Cup as, you know, unlike any other event but i'm i i'm amazed at how much good golf comes out of an environment that is so unlike anything else you can prepare for and anything you could have possibly simulated at any other point in your life absolutely i feel the same way i i am amazed at how good the golf is um because on the first tee it's like you're getting ready to play the 18th hole and you're tied for the lead you know and, and that's what it feels like right from the first hole and it's like that the whole way around for three days because thinking about like you know you're used to seeing highlights on golf channel or whatever by the end of the day with, with a whole field full of hundreds of guys in the field and there's not that many balls in play at the Ryder Cup and you still see chip ins putts hold putts all this stuff is just oh yeah and hold shots from the fairway yeah it's wild Paul Casey made an incredible shot uh, in one of his matches at West uh, at Whistling Straits and I just remember. Yeah, uh, even Oak Hill, just every Ryder Cup watching, someone makes a hole-in-one, it seems like, or holes a shot from the fairway, and there's only eight guys on the course. Right. Speaking of Oak Hill, I'm trying to do the math here. You win three times in 1995, and you are not on the 95 Ryder Cup team. What? What? How is that even possible, points-wise? Well, the third win was after he picked the team. Gotcha. Okay, that makes more sense. Yes, but I was third on the money list with two wins at the PGA when Lanny made his picks. Um, and, you know, we, you go back to 93, and I said it was a very veteran team. That was really where the picks went at that time. Uh, captains usually went with veterans. I'd only played one Ryder Cup. I played two matches, so I didn't have really a ton of experience. So I can see what Lanny's thinking. Like, I'm going to go with the guys that have been there a bunch of times. Sure. Thinking it doesn't matter how they've been playing. I'm just going to go with veterans because they know what it's going to be like, and they'll figure out a way. Hmm. Do you remember it being a close call, whether you would get picked for that team or – were you expecting maybe some I was uh, I was like 13th on the list okay. going into the PGA. So I had a chance to make the team. Uh, in fact, Faxon and I were tied going into the final event. 
and we might have even been tied going in the last round, and he shot 29 on the front. And shot, he shot it. He might, worked his way under the team. Yeah. So yes. that might not have helped me, him <laughs> ma- making the team from the same spot. So, um, And I didn't play the Buick the week before, which I didn't plan on doing anyway. But as it turns out, a hurricane was coming to Florida, and I actually had to go home and help. But, you know, that, you know I don't know if that – you know, the way Lanny looked at it, he may have seen that. I, I would like to have seen him play the week before. Well, it's it, looking at the captain's picks in this era too. It's you know Raymond Floyd was a captain's pick in '93 at the age of 51. It, it, it the veterans got the captain's picks back in that day. It seems like kind of the the tides kind of turned a little bit uh, in that. But so going to I'm um, probably the longest into an interview you've ever gone without somebody mentioning the U.S. Open. But uh, do you remember? I'm curious. Do you remember what Payne Stewart said to you walking off the green at Baltusrol in 1993 after you had won? He was congratulating me and telling me my life was about to change. Hmm. And uh, I was taken back by him not just shaking my hand and then us walking off. I th- I, that was what I was expecting for him to, like, put his arm around me and then start talking to me, like, he, you know, really congratulating me. And it was just unexpected to hmm. me um, that he was giving me as much as he was in, in congratulations. That's what, looking back at it, it looked to be a little more than the standard handshake afterward. You know? Yeah. I was, I was always curious what, what he said there. But you beat Payne Stewart twice in the U.S. Open. Payne is a very popular player. Did you ever get any kind of Stewart Sink-like, Tom Watson-like treatment for it or any, any jabs from people or any flack from anyone that you know wanted to see Payne win? Maybe one or two. Okay. You know, not many. Yeah, I mean, Stewart Sink, the poor guy. I mean, wasn't his fault. Yeah, who who wasn't rooting for Tom Watson right. that year? Yeah, and Payne, I know his friends razzed him all the time. He said, too bad Lee's dad wasn't a Catholic priest, and he would never have had kids, and you would have had four. You know, <laughs> that was the one they usually told him. You said, he, you know, Payne said your life's about to change after you won the U.S. Open. What Did it change, and, 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 if, so, and uh, if so, how? Yeah, I guess things did change. You know, if that was the last term I ever won, I, it, you know, probably wouldn't have changed as much, but. Uh, opportunities to go around the world and play other tournaments and certainly everybody's perception of me changed where you know what what does one week do does it really change but yeah introduced me in a new way a lot of you know the golf fans the avid golf fans may knew who I was but the casual golf fan did not up till then what is it about U.S. Opens that that fit your game you know and and, you know comparing U.S. Open golf and major championship golf to, to to regular golf what made you succeed in in those situations well, I know uh, the difficult conditions. I seem to do better. Um, I was why all, is that for listeners that maybe not may not understand why? Yeah. What, what advantage would you have in that situation? It wasn't that I drove it straighter than everybody. It was uh, more the firm conditions, um, the ability to stop the ball and hit it the right distance. I thought was the you know when my when it, on my good weeks when I was doing that, I really liked it when the course was fast. Whether it was a regular tour event or a major, the faster the course, the better I felt about my chances. Because I felt like I could hit it the right distance um, and make the ball either stop or you know roll the right amount. If is it fair to say when it's softer that it's just it be, the tournaments become more of a putting contest? Yep. So if you're aiming at the pin and you push it four yards or pull it four yards and the greens are soft, you have a twelve footer. You know if you do that on hard greens, it, you, you you it could run through the green and now you have a difficult chip or you know it's you're not gonna you can't miss by four yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and and still have an easy putt because I you know I try to spend I spend way too much time trying to figure out why we see Brooks Kepka and Louis Oosthuizen on every major championship leaderboard you know when everyone wants to play their best golf those are the two guys that just rise to the occasion better than than anyone else as far as separate themselves out from tour play and it, it, I don't think we maybe have enough appreciation as viewers at home for how 
different the golf can be for major championships compared to normal tour stops. Is that does that sound accurate? Yeah, and I think you'll see John Rahm is one of those guys. Yeah, how he played at Torrey Pines, I watched it on TV, but what I saw was he was getting it closer, and his ball was stopping quicker than everybody else. Nobody could get as close as him and get him to stop it as quick as he did. And then he made the two putts in the last two holes, but he was hitting better shots than everybody else that was in contention. I think I can somewhat understand the elation that comes from going from zero to one major championship. What I don't think I have a full grasp for is, you know, you know, I think everyone's major goal, you know, when you come out and play on tour is to win a major, right? But what is going from one major to two majors feel like? And what does that, what does that do for you? Do you weird question, but you know what I'm getting at? Well, I, I would think that I enjoyed the second one more, you know, when you're in college, and whoever your favorite golfer was, you know, Tom Watson, I love watching him. You know, Jack Nicklaus, had, you know, wasn't playing as much, but he still won the 86 Masters. I was in college then, one of the great wins of all time. So, you know, okay, I'm a professional. I want to be a professional golfer. I want to go on tour. What are your goals? Well, Jack Nicklaus is the greatest ever, so let's shoot for that. You know, when did he win his first major? He was 21. Um, and then he just kept winning. So, and if you set that standard, like, okay, I didn't win a major when I was 21. I wasn't even on tour. It took me four years to get on tour, and Nicholas had already won how many majors by then. So, you know, you start thinking a little differently. But, you know, you're still – the major is the one thing. If you could win, you've done something. Hmm. So, you know, that's what we're all shooting for, and there is no perfect formula. Some of the guys are, you know, obviously very talented and work very hard and they're driven and figure out a way to get themselves ready for those weeks and give themselves a chance. But uh, for me, that happened twice. Hmm. What, what uh, do you get asked about the ball falling out of the tree a lot at Olympic? Is that the moment you you, you look back at? I guess tell tell listeners that story if they're not right. familiar with it. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that tree's not there anymore. They've done really? a lot of tree removal in Olympic. I just played it recently, and I think it looks great without the so many trees. There's still plenty of trees to get hit, mm-hmm. you know, to hit behind or get your ball stuck in the tree. But in practice rounds, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think I lost two balls in a tree. So it was not that unusual for a ball to stay in a tree there. Those are very thick trees. It does happen. Um, and I've heard stories where they've had hundreds of balls fall out of trees when they cut limbs off. So they like to eat balls. So it's not that huge of a surprise for the ball to stick in the tree. So, you know, a little bit. You know, it wouldn't happen here in a pine tree, but those trees, yes. So I hit it to the right and started down there, and uh, Marshall walked back up and said he watched it go into the tree and not come out. Well, I didn't know the rules very well. Once you leave the teeing ground, if you go back and hit another one, that one's in play, mm. period. So I can't go call it a provisional. You have to hit a provisional while you're on the tee. But before I turned, I turned around to go back and hit another one, before I went 20 yards, they yelled and said, oh, it just fell out. So it was in the tree for a minute and then fell out. And then you go on to win by, was it one shot or two shots? Yeah, one. one shot. Yeah, and, and where I was wasn't great. But in my mind, I was thinking, it's, I thought it was the hardest hole in the course for me. The tee shot, it's a downhill, right to left slope, dogleg right. Very hard to hit the fairway unless you'd fade the ball. And I was mostly a drawer. I could fade the ball when I absolutely had to, but I didn't like that tee shot at all. So it, was, it wasn't a very good tee shot. So I'm thinking, how am I going to make double now? That's all I wanted to do was just make a double, and then the ball fell out, and it was a hard shot to get in the fairway, and I didn't even get it in the fairway because it was, you know, went across the fairway. First cut, hit it behind the pin in the first cut again, um, and chipped in for par. <laughs> and that was the second time I chipped in for par that week. So, um, you know, a hole that's going very badly, 
turns out you walk up with the par somehow. Hmm. Um, and that could have been much worse than par. It could have been double or triple. Because you, you were how many shots back going into that final round, too? I mean, it, it, at one point you had a seven-shot deficit. I know that. Uh, I think during the final round. is it Were you even thinking about was winning a realistic option for you at that point? When I finished, I doubled Saturday, uh, 17 Friday and Saturday from the fairway, mm-hmm. one of the hardest fairways to hit on the course, too. But Saturday I hit a good shot in the green out of a divot and went over the green, and it was just a really thick patch of rough. So I was dejected about that double, even more so than the one Friday. But when I finished and saw that I was still fifth, I think I was fifth. But I, there weren't that many people in front of me you know, it just gave me a little bit of hope. But I also wanted to play well because I wasn't exempt for the Masters. Mm. That's actually could be on your mind, you know, you're – In a major and you're a, thinking about a qualify yeah. for another one. Yeah. <laughs> but I know if I just played decent on Sunday, I'd be in the Masters, so I had that. And that's really all I want to do is just go out and play well. Um, I really wasn't thinking about winning. And then I bogeyed two and three. Um, I just wanted to turn things around. That's all. Mm-hmm. On the fourth hole, I made a birdie, and then – it looked really bad on five, and then the chip-in happened for par after everything else. And after that, I hit every fairway and every green. Wow. What, what does winning majors do off course for a player? You mentioned the opportunities to play around the world and whatnot. I think that's probably something that uh, us viewers at home also don't have great appreciation for. You know, how, What does that do for your marketability? Does it you know, does it really change your life off the course as well? Well, there, that does help that. Uh, the endorsements, your club deals, other opportunities. Um, you don't have to take all of them. And I feel like sometimes you can take too many and one sponsor might not be too happy that you've taken on three more sponsors and they don't have the center stage, whatever. So, I, you know, if you have good ones, keep them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that particular year, 98, I went and played in Japan three times, which, you know, I played Japan a little bit up till then, but it was usually just once a year, um, not three times. So those were good paydays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, you know, the world match play, the million dollar in South Africa. So those, you know, small fields, hard to get in. And this is pre-Tiger money boom, right? So the, yeah, these opportunities were not as present, you know, in the, the big dollar opportunities were not as present at that at that stage, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I, but still, when, the way I looked at going overseas during the regular tour season, I just felt like it was easier to stay home and play a regular tour event because we played for enough money. If I played well, I'd be fine. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to support our tour, and um, I tried to go play events that I didn't play for a couple of years, and and work at all of them in. I mean, the tour tried to encourage us to do that. I don't know how many guys really did that, but I tried to work every tournament in over at least a few years, and then I probably played more than I needed to. But I, I'd rather play tournaments. I felt like my game progressed more during a tournament week than it did at home practicing. Yeah, what's it like? So you're you're on tour for six full years. And then this tsunami hits, you know, this wave of buzz, uh, media attention, dollar signs and talent comes in in the name of Tiger Woods in the, in the fall of, of 1996. What do you remember about that time period? What was the what was the chatter like around the guys on tour that were already out there about this kid that was coming up? Yeah, well, my rookie year, I played with Phil Mickelson at Tucson, my first tournament. And there was a lot of chatter about him being a college. And the next year he walked up on the range and there was a horde of uh, – media following him onto the range and I'm like isn't he still in college I mean they act like he's going to win this week and then he did (laughs) um so I'd already seen the 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 young hype machine coming but you know Tiger played quite a few tournaments as an amateur and I don't think he finished very high in any of them 
You know, we saw Phil win as an amateur, saw Scott Verplank win as an amateur. So, you know, we weren't, like, com- completely convinced that he was going to win right away. So you, you, may, you guys put Curtis out there to do that interview, though, with him that, that keeps getting replayed 20 years later. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. I think it was kind of sort of the same thing, like, hey, let, you know, why don't you get your feet wet yeah, a little you, bit? You'll learn is the line that he gives him, you know, about second place not being too bad. <laughs> and, but, like, that was not a, you know, it's easy to say, say now, but at that time, I mean, it was, yeah, I, I could see – a lot of you know some of the more uh, grizzled, grizzled veterans saying like this is not a slam dunk that this guy is going to dominate out here. Right. Yeah. Our number one player, Nick Price, had a great run and he'd won fifteen to twenty tournaments over four or five year period. And we know Greg Norman was great and contended a ton and won twenty tournaments. So you know most of us didn't think that you know winning seven or eight times a year for a long time was really you know doable. Yeah. Nobody else was coming close to doing that. But we found out differently quickly, and we found out that he was thinking on a whole different level. And what do you have a go-to Tiger story, or, the, or do you remember like the first time that you uh, that you played with him? Well, I played quite a bit with him at Isleworth when he first uh, turned pro. The golf course has been redone now, but I do remember driving in. We played quite a bit, and the one particular morning I'm driving in, and he's on the ninth fairway, and he's getting ready to hit a second shot. I didn't know he was shooting 59. He played the back first finished on the front and I nearly laid the horn on in the middle of a swing <laughs> this is right before the masters yeah yeah I when he shot his 59 yeah. and whatever so I, you know he probably would have never talked to me again but <laughs> but there were there were a couple times I know Grant Waite and I were beating him and O'Meara um and there was enough wind on 17 we couldn't get the 17 green and two we drove it perfect and get three wood right up in front and he's like flared his drive and he's got like 270 into the wind and hits it a foot Wins the hole and he birdied 18, reversed all the bets, and we lost. And we're like, you know, it's, it's like it would be like playing basketball with Shaq, and he just holds the ball up here, and you just can't get it, and you're swinging. I, I'm amazed going back looking at old highlights of what he was able to do with a, a, a 1990s golf ball. And it, you know what I mean? As far as the distances he was able to hit it, the, the spin he was able to get on the ball. I mean, was, that ball was easier to spin back then. But how, I guess, uh, to frame this into a question, does it seem like the technology evolution in the 2000s actually allowed people to stay closer to him than it would have if the, if the golf ball had, hadn't really changed as dramatically as it did? Yes. Um, that's the biggest difference is, well, I don't know if you, the USGA just tested recently a persimmon wood and today's driver with today's ball. And I don't know these numbers for sure, so somebody doesn't have to email me or write me a letter and tell me I'm wrong. But what I thought I heard was same swing speed, dead center hit. It was only eight yards difference. One-eighth of an inch off center, the persimmon was 56 yards shorter. So it was it was just the premium on hitting it in the center of the face was much bigger back then. And that's part of the reason why guys hit it so far now is there's no fear of missing it. So as a kid, you swing as hard as you want right from the start. And it's a little easier to pick up club head speed when you're doing it from the beginning. When you're fifty something and you're trying to figure out a way to swing faster, it's it's a challenge. I'm still trying, but yeah, that's that's about as good as I've heard it heard it summed up in terms of you know watching him wail on balls at the '97 Masters. It was like there's a reason why no one else was wailing on it that hard. Like you could hit it that far if you'd connect one out of eight, but he was connecting seven out of eight, and no one else could do that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously, this is the, we're look, we're talking about the the best career ever, but I still wonder what it would look like if if you know things didn't evolve the way that they did evolve right and and he you know he spun the ball a ton 
and he learned how to manage that um, and take the spin off of it and change his swing. I mean, he transformed a lot of parts of his game. Um, we already knew he, he was tremendously talented and had the drive and, you know, the ability to get out of trouble and get up and down and just do whatever, just hit whatever crazy shot needed to be hit, he could do it. Um, so you can imagine that the equipment made gave everybody else a, ch- everybody else a chance. So, yeah, maybe he would have won 100 tournaments. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How does technology uh, help you guys on the Champions Tour level? Like, how does – how does uh, how does technology you know has have you found yourself you know getting more distance even as you've gotten older or what what is kind of your perspective on uh, on how technology helps people at this level? Well, it is easier to hit the big headed driver, the bigger sweet spot. Even today's three wood is bigger than what my driver was in 1998. That's wild. So yeah, you watch the old film from the 90s and you go, why is everybody hitting three wood off the tee? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's a driver. You know, that's just how small the heads were. I watched. I was looking at some old highlights to prepare for this i was watching you t- you hit your opening tee shot at the uh rider cup and you do a couple little extra waggles and i look at that club head i'm like man that is a different tee shot with that driver than it would be today right now all the kids that are playing these different equipment who's to say that if they grew up with the other equipment they wouldn't be just as good but do you think that makes a big difference now seeing like we're, we're you know the guys that are in their mid-20s now never had small headed drivers and the, the way the golf swing the way it seems like a lot of young people swing the club do you do you, I guess do you see kind of a, a delineation between like even Tiger did not grow he still hits down on the driver he did not grow up hitting the ball the way Justin Thomas hits the ball can you tell like the delineation of the guys you know that grew up hitting it this way and grew up hitting it you know on the way up right uh yeah everybody out here I mean there's yeah. uh VJ hits it pretty far still Darren Clark um, Scott McCarron. Phil's and, out here now. Yeah, too. Phil. You know, he, there's there's another guy that he will figure out whatever he has to do to get better at, you know, hitting it further. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty amazing. His conditioning, his eating habits, whatever, you know, he's he takes it very serious. Maybe we all should take it more serious that way. We play pretty good out here. Uh, it's very challenging. But, you know, I don't – in the end, I don't know that we take, quite take it really serious. Um hmm. We still laugh about our shortcomings, laugh at each other, give each other some good ribbing, but it's all very good natured. How nice is have, is not having a cut? What does that What does that do to you to your week? No, oh, well, scheduling your all your travel is so much easier. Yeah, uh, I buy my tickets way in advance now. I, I like traveling on Monday, so I don't you know I don't I don't want to finish my round Sunday no matter when it is and rush off to go anywhere unless I'm going home. Um, you know, if we're going to the next tournament, we don't start till Friday, so we have an extra day anyway. So just take it easy on Monday, spend the night, take your time. Yeah, um, that's a, a big difference on the regular tour. You'd be getting out of town on Sunday night, going wherever, because the week starts a day earlier. Yeah, it's just a earlier week. It's a tight squeeze. The the four round tournaments are a tight squeeze, and the three the three dayers kind of seem to make a lot more sense uh, travel wise and whatnot. Yeah, but. Tuesday I think is an important day for preparation and getting ready for the tournament. So. You know, you've played Sunday, you wait till Monday, and you got Tuesday, and then the tournament, and it's just yeah. then pro-am and then tournament. It, so. comes, it comes quick. A few uh, random questions for you here before as, as we go uh, move towards the end here, but what is, what's the most nervous you've ever been over a single golf shot? Most nervous over any shot. It might have been in the Ryder Cup. Um, that's usually that's usually an answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just know it, their nerves there, just the extra care I had to take 
there might have been a time when I was playing really bad. I was nervous too because I didn't know where it was going to go and I had a chance to make a cut. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that, I've heard people say that too. Of real nerves come when you're trying to make the cut because your game's not all the way there. Yeah. But when you're in contention, your game's there and the nerves are very. It's a very different nerve presentation. I can't. Nothing pops into my head right now mm. as far as the one shot that made me the most nervous. I, I know the putt I made on 17 at Valderrama against Jose Maria in my singles match. Um, the adrenaline, the nerves, everything, were they were going really hard. And I, and I was just like, you keep your head down and take it inside. That was all I was thinking was, and it went in. Um, I'm not sure how it happened, but, <laughs> and that's, you know, you watch the Roderick Cup all the time, and I'm just like, are those guys really dialed in and just complete control, or do they feel like I felt? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, the answer to that question is almost always something that's, that's Ryder Cup related, so they probably felt how you felt. But what's the worst shot you've ever hit in competition? Hmm. Oh, I've hit plenty. Gosh, man, you're trying to forget those. Uh, <laughs> this is why we're doing this interview on Tuesday. You got several several days until the first yeah. round. I don't feel if it was the eve before a tournament, I would feel bad asking. Oh no. That. Well, you can ask us out here. We've we've <laughs> we have done so much, and you know you got to get over it. You don't want to carry it around. That's that's the hard part with golfers. They want to dwell on the dumb stuff they did. Or the close calls instead of just thinking about how great they played when they won. I feel like the really bad shots, though, are almost the ones you can kind of laugh at. You know, almost everyone has one of, I topped it, I shanked it, I did something. I think it's the ones that were just semi-bad that you're in, when you're in contention that really hurt the most to talk about. I know. I, I was just trying to go through my head, like, what, what, where, where was I where I had a chance to win a tournament and I hit it out of play or something? That's a different category. I was kind of thinking, like, yeah, I just dead-topped one or bladed, sculled one, a chip or something like that. Yeah. But if it, that's good that nothing came to mind if, if – it may come to come to mind in the middle of the night tonight. There might be too many of them that I can't <laughs> pick which one. What is uh, what's left for you to accomplish in golf? What's a goal you still have, uh, accomplishment wise? Well, I want to win another tournament out here. You know, it'd be nice to have a little bit higher goal than that and and win the money list. But you know, every year there's another handful of fifty year olds that are coming out, and I'm getting further from fifty. So, uh, but Jay Haas is a good example of. He's 68. He's 10 years older than I am, and he's still contending. He won just a couple years ago. Fred Couples, yep, he's got good genes. I know his back doesn't allow him to play and practice as much as he wants to, but he still plays really good when he plays. Um, and Bernard Longer is another inspiration. So I know if I work hard at it with the right attitude that I can win another tournament, but it's going to get tougher and tougher, you know, because I've got to beat younger guys. Yeah, that's the thing. It's they're the it, it's it's weird to have a I guess weird is it just comparing it to the PGA Tour you have a set like your 51 52 50 seasons are the, the your prime like your true prime out here and almost everyone comes out and plays very very good golf almost immediately and there's just a whole new crop I guess you know there's new crops of rookies and stuff on the PGA Tour but I struggle with this question or I was trying to come up with a, a career comp for you someone that has a similar profile in terms of wins major wins does anybody come to mind if i ask you that two majors and a players right yep um david thomas won more i was going to fred couples has more tour wins he has one major in a players uh i think it, i think he has two players he does have two players you're right so that that was one that came to mind but he has a few more tour wins i, I it was it was an interesting profile there's not a lot of guys that have eight you have eight PGA Tour wins and two majors. That's a that's an interesting profile. Yeah, uh, Larry Nelson's got what he was thirteen to fifteen wins, I think, with three majors. Okay, something like that. I don't know. Hmm. I thought I think he might be the least respected three time major winner. 
I feel like, yeah, Larry Nelson doesn't get talked about enough. We might have to do a, a little deep dive on him. Yeah. and I, I shouldn't say least respected, but maybe least talked <laughs> least about. Least appreciated, probably. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What? Uh, all right, last question, and we'll let you out of here. You need to tell us about Lightspeed and what Lightspeed is up to. Lightspeed has got a whole bunch of songs, 15, ready for the world to hear. Who is Lightspeed? Lightspeed is my son. And what is what kind of music does he make? Um, it's well, I'm not. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what his genre is. It's uh, contemporary space pop. Okay, interesting. So um, <laughs> that might be a hint on what the music's like and, and the whole vibe, uh, what he's going to come with. Have you heard it? I've heard it. Yes, I'm not allowed to share. He gets mad at me and my wife when we play it for other people, but we think it's really good and we want everybody to hear it. That's awesome. I'm I'm excited to hear it as well. So I just thought it's my rookie year. The one moment that was the craziest, my I played Cypress Point. It's the last time we played there. We had 60-mile-an-hour winds. I've never played in stuff like that. I just played Cypress Point a few weeks ago. Um, during, well, actually, it was two weeks ago during the uh, first tee tournament. and I, I can never play there and not think about playing at 60-mile-an-hour winds huh. when, you know, the par 3 16th was a full four iron and a full nine iron. It was, it was par three. <laughs> you had to lay up over the left. Yeah, right? I hit a low duck hook four iron because that's what everybody else did. It was a three-group weight and then had 100 yards and hit nine iron. Um, <laughs> guys were making sevens and eights and tens everywhere. And wow. I've never seen anything like that. Any golf – sorry, I lied. I do have a question. Any golf courses left that you haven't played that on your list? That What's at the top of that? I have not played the country club. Okay. That might be the highest-rated course I have not played. Okay. Um. I don't know if I'll ever get to see Port Rush, but if I get over to Ireland, I will go play Port Rush. Do you add Royal Port Rush? Do you add on other golf courses when you travel sometimes? Yes. Um, well, St. Louis Country Club just was one I got to play for the first time. I'm trying to think. There was another one this year that I played for the first time that was a top 50 course somewhere. Oh, uh, Paso Tiempo. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I played the Meadow Club, which is north of San Francisco, and that was fantastic. I hadn't even heard of it before. Wow. Mackenzie's first course in North America. Uh, and I, I, it's one of my favorites. So, because not it's not everyone. Not everyone go, wants to play more golf when you know when you guys have played as much golf as you have. So. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to translate to me get to do any golf course design, but I I love to just play them and look at the land and think, okay, well they didn't have bulldozers, they figured out a routing, they moved a little bit of dirt here and there. What were they thinking? It's almost always subtlety, I find. It's not, you know, it's it's not always dramatic. It's little slopes, it's little mounds, little hills, oh, little yeah. hazards that are just right in your way. And uh, it's, yeah, there's some, something about playing classic golf courses that uh, activates a, so, kind of almost like a chess match feel more than it is a, a brute test of yeah. golf. And, and, when I, and when I played the Meadow Club, there were some features that I see in core Crenshaw courses. Mm-hmm. I texted Ben while I was on the course and asked him if he'd been there and he's never even been there. Hmm. And I thought, how how strange that, I see these core Crenshaw features in a course that he'd never been to. And I just, you know, why wouldn't they influence you? You you know, the good, the greats of yesterday, why not copy them? Mm-hmm. I think things are definitely, definitely trending that way. So anyways, best of luck this week. Look forward to following you. And uh, thanks for joining the podcast. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.